Welcome and thank you for downloading the Trinity Now podcast, recorded live from Trinity Church of Weston Chapel. For more information about Trinity Church, please visit us online at trinitychurchnow.com. Now, filling in for Pastor Dave, let's join Pastor Justin. Hello again. If you're not tired of me yet, you're about to be. Uh, If you have your Bibles here this morning, and I hope you do, uh, if you would join me in turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to be starting in verse 14 this morning. I'll give you a moment to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you need a hint, it's right after 1 Corinthians. All right. I know that's, a, that's an amazing hint there for you. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. If we would all stand together for the reading of God's Word. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not recounting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is alive and it speaks to our hearts this morning. God, we thank you so much for that. Lord, as we begin to delve into your word into this passage here, God, I pray that you would speak your truth. God, that you would help me get out of the way so your truth could come and speak to your people. God, give us a wonderful uh, day. Let this presence, let your presence be in this room and intercede on our behalf. We love you and praise you in your name. Amen. And you may be seated. And uh, this is a passage that is uh, kind of rife with memory verse, you know, uh, words, you know, memory verse passages. Uh, a lot of us, we, we, when we read through that passage, you started picking up halfway through a verse, I could hear it. You started quoting it all right along with me because you knew that one. That one had stuck in your mind. This is an incredibly uh, uh, full passage here from Paul. And before we get into a, a lot of depth here, I want to give you a little bit of background. Context is important, and it's the same thing in Scripture. We need to know what's going on here and what's happening as we read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So a little bit of background uh, on this uh, section here. So the first thing, uh, this is Paul's third letter to the church at Corinth. And you might be asking yourself, well, why isn't it 3 Corinthians? Uh, Because sometimes things get lost. Uh, the second letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinthians was lost. It was not included in Scripture. 
Uh, I think that was probably because that one from Paul might have been a little too harsh. Uh, we have a good feeling to believe that he was uh, quite mean to the Corinthians in that letter, and maybe God wasn't really the one behind that letter. So we don't have that one anymore. Instead, we have 1 Corinthians, we have 2 Corinthians, uh, but there were three letters. The other thing we need to know about uh, Corinth is Corinth was an incredibly sinful place. Um, we, we hear the term thrown around the city of sin, and we're referring to Las Vegas, right? Las Vegas ain't got nothing on Corinth, all right? It really doesn't. Corinth was, was a, a venerable den of sin. It was home out uh, of the temple of Aphrodite. The temple of Aphrodite, of course, the Greek god of, of fertility. Uh, that temple uh, was known to house a thousand prostitutes. Uh, there's also, Corinth is also famous for uh, underground taverns that are constantly being dug up in Corinth throughout the marketplace. Uh, there were these taverns where you would go underground uh, and you would just drink and drink and drink until you would pass out. Uh, it was known for that. In fact, uh, a, uh, if, if you will, a Greek curse word, uh, it comes from, from Corinth. Corinthia zomai, it means to practice fornication. Okay, so we, so we start to understand that Corinth is an incredibly sinful place. You need to understand where this church, this Corinthian church, is located. Uh, we also need to understand that Paul chose this place to go to. He was guided here by God for a specific purpose. He ended up spending 18 months in Corinth. Now, if you know anything about Paul, Paul was constantly traveling. He was going all around the known world at this time. 18 months is a long time for Paul to be stationed in one place, but he was he believed that the church at Corinth was important to establish. And we get uh, the first letter, the 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you ever read through 1 Corinthians, it kind of uh, is, is a mini-seminary class in and of itself. Uh, it is basic theology 101 that he, he is writing in this letter to the Corinthians. He wants to establish them. Uh, he wants to establish a firm foundation because he knows where this church is located. It's located in a very difficult area for a church to thrive. Uh, here's a little bit of background on 2 Corinthians. So we know 1 Corinthians was sort of the construction. Uh, Paul spent a lot of time there, and then after he spent the time there, uh, he left and he got some reports that the church wasn't doing too well. In fact, the church uh, was described as rebellious. Rebellious. You see, what happened in, in Corinth is uh, they were a church that was established. They were trying to be established on a firm foundation. And what ended up happening is they let outside influences come into the church. They weren't just relying on God's word. They said, well, we really like God's word. We really like this foundation, but we also really like these outside influences. Let's see if we can meld the two. Let's see if we can put them together. We can still be Christians, but we can have this other stuff that we like too. And, and Paul saw this as rebellious. He said, you have to get back to your roots. Uh, and that's, this is when we believe he wrote that second letter that was lost. He writes the letter, um, and uh, we believe it said, something along the lines of straighten up, you know, that sort of thing. And he's telling the Corinthians this, uh, and then he gets word, he gets word from a fellow missionary uh, by the name of Titus. He's in Macedonia, he meets up with Titus in Macedonia, and Titus tells him, Paul, I got some great, great news. The church is no longer in rebellion. They have come back to Christ. They are a firm church, they are a good church, in the middle of a horrible place. And Paul rejoices. Paul's excited. He said, this is fantastic. I'm so glad to hear it. 
And it's then that he writes 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is literally a, a letter of, of praise, a letter of celebration, of excitement over a church that has found its core, that is standing for Jesus Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians is. And shortly after this, Paul would actually make his last trip to Corinth uh, and, and celebrate with them in person. So we kind of get a background on what's going on here, okay? 2 Corinthians is a letter of celebration, a letter of, uh, of praise and excitement. And uh, we have to remember one more quick thing. And, and this is something that I think everyone sort of understands, but it's important to point out as well. Paul was a good preacher. And a good preacher preaches to his audience. Okay, So Paul's instruction in here, Paul's um, uh, information in here, his wisdom in here, is directed primarily at a church in the middle of a sinful world. That's where it's directed. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, God used his words to speak to us. Does everyone understand that distinction? Paul's words were to the Corinthians. So when we study his words, we need to keep that in mind. But understand that it's God through his Holy Spirit that makes these words relevant to us in our lives now. Okay, so understanding where that came from. So a.k.a., if we understand that Paul's audience was in the middle of the, one of the most sinful places in the world, it will help us understand his words a little bit better. Now, I have to warn you, someone came to me earlier, <laughs> I won't mention who, and they said, uh, Pastor, you got five to ten minutes. <laughs> I said, great, I only have eight pages of notes, so if I can get through all of them in a minute apiece, we'll be good. Uh, I'm through one, and it's been ten Don't worry, don't worry. I'll get you out of here in plenty of time to eat. You just, uh, you might have to wait in a line, heaven forbid. Okay, all right, so it, now that we have sort of a, a background set here, jump back into your Bibles, get back in here. I want to give you a little bit more background before we get into verse 14. So let's read 2 Corinthians 5, let's read 10 and 11 together. Here we go. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Here Paul's setting up, uh, he's reminding them that there is going to be a time where we have to sit in front of Christ, and he's going to say, you did this well and you did this poorly. Just a reminder, that's going to happen. Christians, sometimes we, uh, we get in our, in our head that, well, we don't have to go through that. Oh, no, no, that's where he says, you know, up or down. You take the up elevator or the down elevator, right? We're like, no, we're past that. We're going up. This is a separate thing. Okay, we are going to sit in front of Christ, and he's going to say, here is where you did well, and here's where you did poorly. We're going to have that experience. Paul is explaining this to them. And he says, as part of that experience, you are going to be asked where you succeeded and where you failed for Christ. You're going to have that explained to you. And he goes on in verse 11 to say, here's, here's what we need to do. Verse 11, uh, this, this fear, this awe of Christ, it motivates us to persuade men to accept Christ. Okay, This is the, this sort of idea that, oh, we're going to have to stand in front of Christ. We better, better get our game together. Okay, We better... I know what we're doing. That should persuade, or that should uh, influence us to persuade men to Christ. Now, notice he used the word persuade. Persuade. There's this idea I think that goes around in churches that we need to tell. 
we need to tell others about Christ. That is true. Paul goes a step further. He doesn't just say, lay it out there, let them decide. He says, persuade them. It's a different thing, isn't it? It totally is. Uh, think about a commercial. Think about a commercial. How effective would a commercial be? Let's take a car commercial. They just put a picture of the car up there. Maybe on the side had a list of its features. Just a picture, list of its features. That's all it said. You would look at that commercial and be like, what's wrong with that? Where's the, where's the music? Where's the funny guy getting run over a banana peel or something? There's got to be something to this. You know, there, there's got to be something more. But no, when we see commercials, there's more to it. There's influence. They're trying to persuade us to this vehicle, to this product. I don't want to call Jesus Christ a product. He's so much more than that. But what Paul is saying is that men need to be persuaded. They need to be convinced. They need to be pushed toward Christ. If we just lay out the facts for them, that's not Paul's way. That's not how he did it. I think sometimes we say, well, I'll just lay it out there for them. They can say yes, they can say no. Then I don't have to worry about it because I laid it out there for them. It takes less effort. Paul says put in more effort. Work harder. Persuade. It's a different word. It's a word worth knowing. So check it out. Translated. Because some of this gets kind of kind of difficult to understand. The whole thing translated. Our admiration and respect of Christ for what he has done for us should be motivation to lead others into a saving knowledge of him. Does, did everyone understand that? It's a little bit easier to understand translated. The, the fear and the awe that we have of Christ should lead us to push others, to help others, to move others toward a relationship with Christ. Let's take a couple of more verses here, okay? All right. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Now, listen. Paul dealt with a lot of people who were trying to knock him down. Anybody ever deal with that before? A lot of trying to knock you down, trying to discredit you, make you look bad. Paul was having tremendous success. And whenever you have tremendous success, people show up who start to doubt you, who start to say there's no way you can really be having that much success. You've got to be cheating somehow, you know. Like when we play basketball together on Tuesday nights, you know, I've got to be cheating somehow. I'm just so good at basketball, you know. <laughs> Judging by the laughter, many of you don't believe that, but it's true. I'm very good. But Paul experienced this. He had people who were trying to discredit him, who were trying to bring him down. And they said one of the, one of the chief accusations against Paul, we're going to get to two of them here, one of the chief ones was you're just promoting yourself. You're just selling the brand of Paul. You know, they say you're not so much about Jesus anymore. You're just about Paul. Sometimes we see this with, uh, with so-called rock star preachers, rock star pastors. You know, you get big enough, you get successful enough, God's doing enough in your life that people start accusing you of being about yourself, not about God. And when people start talking, it's hard to talk louder than a group of people, isn't it? And this is what Paul's dealing with. So in this letter, he says, listen, I'm not trying to promote myself. I want you to know what God's doing so that we can all rejoice together. See, Paul understood. Paul was a traveling preacher. He went around to churches all over. He shared what happened everywhere so that everyone could rejoice together. He understood 
that we as a church are not individual buildings in individual cities. We as a church are the body of Christ here on earth. And he's, that's the church he wanted to celebrate, and that's why he spread his news about what he was doing uh, around everywhere he went in his letters. It wasn't arrogance. It was wanting to celebrate with the church. And he gets another one here, verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Beside ourselves. What does that conjure up to you? If you said, I am beside myself today. I don't ever say that. But you know, what, what if you said, I am beside myself today? It doesn't mean that you have you know, cloned yourself and you're standing next to you and give yourself a high five. Although that would be kind of cool. Uh, no, it, what it means is you've gone crazy, you're out of your mind, you're hysterical, right? That's what it means to be beside himself. Paul was accused of being hysterical. He was accused of being crazy. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, of course it does. Anytime you want to discredit somebody, just call into question their mental acumen. Just say, hey, you're crazy. All of a sudden people are like, hey, is he crazy? He might be crazy. Some of you are looking at me right now and say, I'm pretty sure he's crazy. Okay? It's possible. I don't think I am. But, but what Paul says is, listen, I'm not crazy. If it sounds like I'm out of my mind, it's because I'm so fired up about God that I'm going crazy. He, he's so inside of me and I'm so passionate about it that he's driving me crazy. So if I look crazy, it's because I'm thinking about God. If I'm speaking normally, it's because I'm thinking about you. Let that sink in for a minute. That's what he said. He said, if I'm going crazy, it's because I'm thinking about God and I'm focused on what he wants to do. If I'm of sober mind, it's because I'm thinking about you and I'm thinking about all the things i got to tell you to get where I am. Paul was excited. But he said, listen, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. So he disputes these two things before we get into the crux of what I wanted to talk about here. And like any good sermon, you know, in my, in my time at seminary, in my many years in the church, I learned that a sermon has to have at least one of a couple of things, right? Uh, it either has to have uh, an acronym, okay, you know, where you're like, bam, you know, beautiful, awesome, magnetic, I don't know, something like that, all right, you have to have your sermon set up that way, you have to have a seven-point plan with sub-points, okay, you guys have seen that sh- uh, sermon structure, or another big one, you ready for this, this is one I've chosen today, all right, alliteration, alliteration is big in sermons, isn't it, right? Yeah. So, so today we're talking about, we have some alliterative points, okay? And, and I want you to check this out. Um, the sermon title today is, is uh, very simple. It's a lot of P's. New passion, new priorities, new purpose. Passion, priorities, purpose. And they might sound really vague, they might sound very similar, but I hope to clarify some of them for you here today. Let's continue reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. Some of you might have compels us, okay? For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Check back to verse 14. God's love controls us. It compels us to live a life that is pleasing to him. That's what it's saying here. God's love, when it is in our hearts, 
it is such a motivating factor that it literally compels us or controls us to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to him. Okay? This is what God's love can do in our lives. Now, some of you might be thinking, I know plenty of Christians who live their life in a way that is not pleasing to God at all. I would say you're right. But I'm telling you, if Christ is in your life and you have the love for him in your life, it will compel you, it will control you to live a life for him. You say, but you didn't answer my question. And I say, I know. I know, we're going to get there. Okay? But if we have this love for Christ in our life, it compels us to live a life that is pleasing to him. When we accept Christ, this becomes our new passion. Our new passion. Many of you have passions in life. I know that as I get older, I have more things that I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about my family, okay? Uh, I didn't used to be, not that I didn't love my family. I was just young and dumb, okay? I didn't get it. But I, I'm passionate about my family. And uh, there we go. Just wake you all up there. All right? Some of you are passionate about, you have hobbies that you're passionate about. You're passionate about, um, you know, golf, okay? I don't know how you could be passionate about that sport. It just breaks your heart every week. Uh, but you're passionate about God. You're passionate uh, about your, your grandchildren. You're passionate uh, about your, uh, your fishing trips. You're passionate about your quilting. You're passionate. You have passions. You have things in your life that you are devoted to, that you love, that drive you, that inspire you. You have passions. Well, when we become new creatures in Christ, when we accept him as our Lord and Savior, that becomes our passion. It drives us. It inspires us. It makes us want to live our life for that. And so when we get this new compassion, as verse 14 says, it compels us to love. This new passion that comes into our life compels us to do things for Christ. Just like when you uh, love playing golf, you are compelled to go out and hit balls in the driving range. Is there anything more pointless than hitting balls on a driving range? No, you're not going to get any better, okay? Believe me, I've done it long enough. I've never gotten any better. Maybe you're a little different. I don't know. But, but this passion, it drives us. It drives us. It's what takes living your life for Christ past being a hobby and into a lifestyle. It's this passion. Passion. We fight for our passions. We work tirelessly for our passions. We even give sacrificially for our passions. I keep going back to golf. There are people in the world who you could not catch up you cannot catch them awake before 8 o'clock in the morning, but if they have a tea time at 7, you're up and out of bed at 5.30, right? That's giving sacrificially. You're giving sleep for this passion. We do all this for our passions. If you are passionate about Christ, it will show up in your actions. You better believe it will. If you're passionate about Christ, it will show up in your actions. Verse 15 shows us that our lives are no longer our own. Let's go back to verse 15. Uh, it says, and, and he who died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Our lives are not our own anymore once we have accepted Christ. It is not. We don't own them anymore. We, the simple act of accepting Christ means you're giving your life to him. It's not yours. You know, some uh, guys do this with tools, okay? Guys do this with tools. Um, borrowing is not the same as giving, right? But everybody has a tool. They let somebody borrow, and now it stays in their garage. And if you ever want that tool, you have to go ask to borrow your own tool out of that guy's garage. You guys know what I'm talking about? At all. Yeah, it's annoying. It's, but it's how we do it. It's 
how we do it. But when you when you let someone borrow a tool, you're not really saying, okay, this is yours now. I have, if I need it, I'll have to you know ask for it or I'll have to ask permission. It, it's your tool. But when we give our life to Christ, it's kind of like going out and saying, okay, okay, uh, here's my jigsaw. It's yours. It's not mine anymore. If I ever need a jigsaw, I'm just going to have to hope that you provide me the jigsaw because you're in control. Maybe I'll never need a jigsaw again. Maybe I won't. But we have to understand that we are no longer in control. We no longer have authority over our own lives. Christ has that authority. That means that our priorities are no longer self-centered. They're Christ-centered. Our priorities are no longer self-centered. They're Christ-centered. It's because Christ has given us new priorities. Now, um, this is kind of difficult to, to understand. Uh, when we look at priorities and we look at uh, how we how we arrange our time, I think everyone at some point in their time has thought through their priorities. What's number one in my life? You've asked yourself this question. What What is number one in my life? If not, a preacher I'm sure has, okay? What's number one? And if you're in church, you say God. And if you're out of church, maybe you say something different. I don't know. But you're asked, what is your priority in your life? And and you might have the, the, the list down. You want God's number one, my family's number two, my church is number three, my job's number four, uh, my dog is number five. Wait, he's part of my family. Move him up. Uh, you know, this is number, my car is number six, you know, TV's number seven, whatever it is. You know, you have your priorities and you sort of list those in your mind. Well, there is a very effective way to tell whether or not your priority list is accurate. There really is. There's a very effective way to tell whether or not you're actually right when you guess what your priorities are. And it's to look at your life. It's to look at where you spend your time, where you spend your energy, where you spend your finances. When you look there, it becomes very clear what your priorities are. Ladies and gentlemen, if you say that God is your number one priority and you're only here on a Sunday morning, it might not show up as, as I am spending most of my time with God. It might not show up that way. I'm just saying, don't get mad at me. Or do, whatever. But if our priority, if we say our, our, our God's our number one priority, our family's our number two priority, and, and instead of hanging out and spending time with our family, we decided to ditch that on a constant basis to go off with our friends, is family really a higher priority? No. Your lives reflect your priorities. Our lives reflect what we believe is important, what we believe is significant. If we believe that God's work is the most significant thing in our lives, you're going to be able to tell that. And I know you can because we can see it in other people really, really well. Can't we? Man, we are good at seeing what other people's priorities are. You know, I love, I love my wife's family very much. I have to say that to preface this. Uh, there's this thing you say in Alabama, and I'm sure you all have heard of it, bless his heart, bless his heart. It gives you free parlance to say anything you want about somebody. You know, as long as you say bless his heart. You've all heard of this before, I'm sure, you know. Like, he is, he is ugly as a June bug, bless his heart. You know, that sort of thing, you know. But now it's okay, it's okay, all right. And so, and so it's, all it is, it's a way to gossip and feel good about yourself is what it is. And so, and so you sit around the dinner table or you sit somewhere else and, and you'll hear, Yo, ladies, this isn't her family. This is just other people in Alabama. Her family are saints. Bless their hearts. The uh, You hear people, and, and man, we're good about talking about other people. We're real good at it. We got that down to a science, man, yeah. 
Now, I, I see what his problem is. Now, his problem is he doesn't really love his wife enough. That's what his problem is. Now, I see, I see her problem. Her problem, she dresses weird. You know, no one that dresses like that really loves, really loves Jesus. You know, that's, that's their problem. Bless their heart. We're really good at diagnosing the issues with other people. You know why? It's because God built us a certain way. He built us with our eyes inside pointing outward. What if God had built us with our eyes pointing inward? First of all, the view would be kind of weird, but what would we see? Might we see our own actions a bit differently? What if you had to view your life from a security camera that was above you at all times that watched you live your life, might it look a little bit different? I assume it would. I assume I wouldn't be as happy with the results. Ladies and gentlemen, if our priorities are really in line, then our lives are going to reflect that. And if our lives don't reflect that, if we really want to change our priorities, we need to change our lives. We need to change our actions, change our plan of attack. Getting a little too close, I'll back up, that's a warning. If our priorities are not in line, we need to change our actions to bring our priorities in line. Check that out. Do that for me. Figure out if your priorities are where you think they are. Verse 17. This one's a famous verse. I know you guys have heard this before. I'm going to read it for you. It's great. It's one of my memory verses that I memorized a couple years ago. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. He's a new creation. I I said creation because that's what I grew up learning it as. He's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You cannot be the same with Christ as you were without him. It's impossible. Impossible. If this is the case, if you're the exact same with Christ as you were without him, then you simply do not have a relationship with Christ. That's the sad news. That's a tough pill to swallow. But you simply cannot be the same with Christ as you were without him. If you are, eh, you don't have him. You have to understand, Christ, a relationship with Christ is life-changing. If our life doesn't change, then we don't have a relationship with Christ. Go back to algebra. You'll understand it all, I promise. All right? As a completely new creation, we have these new priorities. It does not mean we abandon our family. It does not mean we abandon work or our friends, or other relationships. It just means we organize properly. You know, you tell a kid you got to clean out his closet, right? You have to clean out under your bed, all right? The first thing that kid thinks is, I'll just throw it all in the garbage. That'll work. I'll throw it all in the closet. Get rid of it. It doesn't work that way. It's much better to organize. We're not saying get rid of everything else that you love. We're saying get it organized. Paul's saying get it organized. I'm not a very good organizer. If you see my office, you can tell. If you haven't seen my office, don't worry. You don't need to drive by. Get it organized. That's what Paul says. You don't have to give up everything else. In fact, God doesn't want us to give up those things. He calls us to be good husbands, good wives, good mothers, good fathers, good friends, good co-workers. He calls us to be all those things. But we have to understand where our priorities are. Let's move on. 2 Corinthians chapter 18. Don't check your watch yet. I've got a few more minutes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Every time you hear the word reconciliation, some of you, uh, you hear reconciliation, it kind of throws you off. You've heard the word before. You vaguely know what it means, right? But it's, it's kind of hard to read. Think of restoration. Think of restoration, Okay. If that word's a little bit easier for you. 
taking something that that has gone wrong and bringing it back to when it was great. Okay, you know, like that show that they have on TV where they take in like old, uh, you know, old vending machines or like Coke machines and they make them really pretty. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That's fantastic. If anybody wants to do one of those for someone in my office, just let me know. I'll be glad to take that. That'll make it more organized, you know. But anyway, think of restoration. If reconciliation is just something that doesn't kind of cloud your mind a little bit, think of restoration. Think of something that isn't what it used to be and restoring it to what it used to be before, okay? All right, so verse 18, uh, now verse 19. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling or restoring the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed us to the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I would suggest to you that verses 18 and 19 clearly defines our purpose as a body of Christ. Our purpose as a body of Christ. The church's ministry is the ministry of reconciliation. It's the ministry of restoration. You have to understand when God created man, created Adam and Eve, they were in perfect harmony together. And then we messed it up. And I say we because, you know, it wasn't you, it wasn't me, but if it would have been us, we would have messed it up. That's just how we are. We're sinful creatures. And so we no longer could stand side by side with God because we were not worthy. Not worthy anymore. And as loving as God is, as great as God is, he can't just say, eh, I'll ignore that you're not worthy. He's God. It's not of him. He can't do that. And so he had to make a way for us to come back to that state to be reconciled to that state, to be restored to that time where we were just there with God. The ministry of the church is reconciliation. Christ's sacrifice has the ability to restore us to our original relationship with Christ. Without this, we cannot be restored. There is nothing you can do. There is nothing you can buy. There is nothing you can hope for that will restore you to a relationship with Christ other than a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's that simple. There's nothing else out there. Therefore, the purpose of the church is to persuade people, remember that word from Paul before, persuade people to reconcile with Christ. Everything we do as a body of Christ has this in mind. And you might be saying, that's not true. What about Bible study? Bible study is not for unchurched people. And I would tell you, you know what, uh, I could argue with semantics, but for the most part, you're right. You're right. But why do we do Bible study? Or why should we do Bible study? Well, it's very simple. We want to train people. We want people to be ingrained in the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that they can be equipped to go out and persuade people to reconciliation with Christ. It's a way to get you ready. But the ultimate purpose is to go out and to reconcile people to Christ. It's, you know, it's like when you go out and do preventative maintenance, right? You know, and, and as a young person, you don't understand preventative maintenance, okay? Trust me. Um, you know, one thing that I, that I noticed um, when we moved into our new house is the air filters, okay, on the, uh, the air conditioning vents, right? If you don't change those things, all right, um, after a little while, your, your air starts to have to work harder, then your air conditioner breaks down, and your electric bill goes up, and you have to spend a lot more money. Or instead of waiting until the very end, you could just replace the filter every once in a while, right? It's one of those aha moments that we all have to sort of learn from ourselves, even though our parents are standing behind us like, I told you so. All right. 
We have to learn that for ourselves. Think of, think of that. Think of that preparation time, that, that, that daily, that weekly, that monthly uh, Bible study, that studying process is preparing you to go out and reach others. If we just wait and say, well, eventually they'll all figure it out, we're probably going to be broken. Okay? We've got to prepare to reach others. And so everything that we do as a church should have the ultimate goal in mind of persuading others to reconciliation. Verse 20. Verse 20. We're almost heading home. Stay with me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though as through God, pardon me, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I think this verse should be in every church mission statement that ever existed. This is a great verse. We beg you, because of what God did for us, we beg you to be reconciled to God, to restore your relationship with God. That's fantastic. You know, verse 21 here gets a lot of the credit. It's sort of this ultimate uh, representation of the gospel. I think verse 20 is equally as powerful. It says, because you loved us so much, because you changed us, let's go out and help other people change. That's powerful stuff. It really is about sharing God's salvation with others. And if you don't believe me, Jesus himself said it in Matthew 28. The Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. God told us that this is the most important thing. And here's Paul reiterating it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then we get to verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God did amazing things for us, folks. Did an amazing thing. We just came through Easter. I know you heard this, but it's worth reiterating. God didn't have to do anything that he did on that cross for you. He was completely justified in letting all of us pay for our sins with a punishment for sin. Completely justified. He had no compulsion to do that, except that he loved us. He loved us even when we couldn't do what he asked us to do. And because of that, because of that great love, he gave himself up for us that we could be with him. What an amazing, amazing testimony. Some final thoughts. Uh, We as a church exist not for the believer, but for the unbeliever. I fully believe this. And I've had some people who have disagreed with me over the years. It's an unknown church is for the believer to come in and then, and then preachers go out and, and they start preaching and then people end up showing up at the church and be believers. And, and I understand that and I get that. And I think what's happening here is we emphasize different parts of what's important in the church. And maybe this is my, my spiritual gift coming out. Maybe this is you know, just my, my background coming out. But I firmly believe that we as a church exists not for the believer, but for the unbeliever. I believe it with all my heart. The church does work with believers. Of course it does, because we are. We are Christians. We work together. That's what we do. I believe pastors are, are specifically equipped to work with believers, to work with Christians. You don't have a pastor of someone who isn't a Christian. Did you know that? You can't lead someone when they don't know where they're going. Well, yeah, you can. That was bad. Okay, let me rewind. You can't lead someone when they're not on the path. There we go. You can't lead someone when they're not on the path. Pastors exist for believers to help them to grow, to help them to become someone who reaches out and persuades others to be restored. That's what pastors do. Okay, that, That's what my job is with young families and young people. That's what Dave's job is 
with, with everyone here. Our job is to help you to do what Paul has talked about here. That's what it is. But as a church, as a group, we exist for the non-believer. You've heard of preaching to the choir, right? You've heard of that. And I literally am preaching to the choir here today. Hello. Good to see you all. It's, it's nice that, that we're all over the place. I like it. Um, but that's a cliche, and we know it's a cliche, and we use it to mean something that isn't all that flattering. What does it mean? Preaching to the choir. Somebody shout it out. You can talk. It's okay. Right, yeah, yeah. I already know. I already know. You know, do you ever go to to a, an office space, not a place where, where uh, customers come in, but just an office space and they're advertising their own products? Do you ever see that? You know? No. They already know. They've already got it. The idea of preaching to the choir is a cliche because you've, you've already won them over. They already understand. They should be equipped. They should be ready to go. So when we preach, we're preaching to the non-believer, the unbeliever. We're preaching to someone who doesn't already know. Because Christians already have his salvation. Our focus needs to be on reaching those who don't. And listen, if you like me, remember that you like me for the next 45 seconds. If you don't forget that for the next 45 seconds. I know this is scary. I do. But because the church is for unbelievers, you as a believer might feel like you're not being served adequately. And you know what? You're right. And chances are, listen to me and realize I love you, chances are if you feel underserved, it's because you're underserving. Here's what I want you to know. I know Dave feels the same way. I love each and every one of you, even though I barely know some of you. It was a stretch for me to do that when I first started ministry. I can do it now because I realize God has called us to this place to love people and to help guide them in this path so they can reach others. I love you, and by loving you, I say that sometimes not everything is going to be about you. And that's okay. Sometimes we're going to do things for other people, and that's okay. It really is. It doesn't mean we neglect you. We're a team. We don't neglect our team. Has anybody ever been on a, on a sports team or a, or a band team or you've been a part of something collective? When something happens to a member of your team, you help them. You pick them up. You go serve them. When someone in our church gets sick, gets ill, we go help them. We're there with them. We comfort them. When someone has a need in our church family, we are there with them. We comfort them. We pray for them. We do not leave each other behind. We don't do it. But, as a team, our goal isn't to only focus on ourselves. Our goal is to come together and reach others. That's our goal. I understand sometimes it feels like a church that you know, maybe, maybe the things that I liked aren't there anymore. Maybe, maybe the things that really drew me here aren't really doing it for me anymore. And I understand those things can be difficult. You know, growing up, I was a part of um, something called uh, RAs, right? The Royal Ambassadors. Okay, it was great. I loved it. As a little boy, you learned to tie knots. I uh, would play football all the time. I even played soccer. You know, which is kind of crazy now. But I, I remember being a part of it. I remember growing up and going to the youth group, and I really just wanted to be in RAs because that's what I love. That's what drew me to the church. That's what that's what made me feel connected. That's what made me feel established as part of this family. And it was gone. 
And I freaked out for about a year. I didn't like it. What I understood afterward, now looking back on it, is the church wasn't there to serve me anymore. I was a part of the church. I was now there to serve others. I was now there to serve others. We don't leave people behind. We are a team. We work together. But at the same time, our goal isn't to make sure every teammate is happy. Our goal is to make sure that every person out there comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You got me? You still like me, okay? All right. I love you. I love you. Thanks for the applause. I mean, I appreciate it. But, but, you know, we have to speak the truth in love. I know that sometimes those things are difficult to hear. But we have to know what our purpose is. We have to know what our purpose is. It doesn't mean we neglect each other. It just means we work together to do our purpose. Last thing, guys, and I know I went a long time, but I'm only up here every once in a while. So uh, you'll have to bear with me. You'll have to bear with me. As a church, we must cultivate a culture of evangelism. You see, the Corinthians lived in a city that was full of sin. Literally full of sin. If it's full of sin, it's full of what else? Sinners. Good job. It's full of sinners. Look around. Are we really that much different than Corinth? I mean, really think about it. You might think, well, this is a nice neighborhood. And I agree. It really is. But do we have difficulty with, with sexual sin? Do we have people struggling with sexual sin in our area? You bet you we do. Do we have people struggling with addiction in our area? Oh, yeah. Do we have people struggling with, with lying and, and with hatred and, and with all sorts of sin in our area? Yes, we do. Our situation isn't all that much different than Corinth. It's really not. The only remedy for sin is a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the only one. It's the only one. And we as Christians know this, and we're compelled by the love of Christ to tell others who need to hear it. There's this uh, comedian magician. His name's Penn Gillette. He's from a group called Penn and Teller. Some of you may have heard of him. They, they do uh, these magic shows. They also have a, a, a TV show where they talk about current events. And, and, uh, and this guy, Penn Gillette, is, a, is an atheist. He's a out-there atheist. I'll tell anyone who hears. He doesn't believe in God. Well, he made a, a YouTube video a couple of years ago. And in it, he talked about at one of his shows, someone came up to him and they said, I want to give you this Bible. I want to give it to you. I've been praying for you. Here it is. And and it kind of struck him because he said, this guy was a good man. He looked him in the eye. He shook his hand firm. He was a good man. He came and gave him this Bible. And and you see, Pendulet, he had this idea of what Christians were. He had this idea in his head of what we were. And this guy didn't fit that mold. And he goes and he makes this video. And he says in this video, you know, I still don't believe in God. You can see as he's sort of really thinking deeply, something has moved him. But he says this. I don't understand how if you're a Christian, you can't tell others. How much do you have to hate someone to just let them go to hell? Hmm. Folks, when we, when we know people need to hear about Christ and we say, I'll get them next time, or, or when we know something needs to be done about something in our community, we'll say, I'll let someone else handle it. Essentially what you're saying is, it's not worth my time to try to rescue you from, from eternal hell. It's not worth my time. i got a game to watch. i got something to cook for dinner. This is our purpose. Our purpose is to reach them. How can we let anything else get in the way of us doing that? 
You know, I can't assume everyone here today is a Christian that would be foolhardy. I know in a group this size that generally there's at least a few of you who don't know Christ. And let me just tell you, he loves you so much. He loves you so much that when he saw that you weren't going to be able to spend eternity together, he said, I can't have that. I've got to fix it. The only way for him to fix it was with a sacrifice worthy of of him. And he said, I'm going to give my son. And he gave his son. He sent his son to earth to teach, to preach, and ultimately to give his life so that you could have eternal life through him. You see, we're not worthy. We have sin. We're full of it. It stops us from being with God. But if we believe in his son, we believe he is who he says he is, the son of God, and that he did what he said he did. He defeated death for us. And then we decide, I want to live my life for you. If you do that, unbeliever here this morning, Christ will compel you to tell others. He will give you that salvation. He will give you his grace. I need you to know that this morning. Because we can't stand here and talk about the importance of sharing without sharing with those who are already here. Jesus loves you so much. And he wants a relationship with you. We're going to end the service in just a moment, but afterward, there's going to be some prayer warriors down here. They're going to be ready to pray with you. They don't know that I was going to tell them this right now, but if you want to start that relationship with God, they can help you pray. They can give you the words and help you understand that. I'll be out in the back. I'll be greeting and shaking hands. I can't wait to shake hands with all of you. But if someone here says, I need to talk to you about salvation, sorry, everybody, you can shake my hand later. I'm going to go talk with them, okay? If you need to start that relationship with God, there's no better day for it. So after we finish, just come down up front. Let's pray. Lord God, I just thank you so much for uh, for attentive listeners today. God, I, uh, Lord, it's, it's such a privilege and such an honor to be able to speak in your church. God, I just pray that your words will touch hearts, that they will touch lives. God, that I know there are people here today who need to start that relationship with you. They wouldn't let anything hold them back. They would decide to start that today. God, I know that there's a church here filled with people who are compelled by your Holy Spirit. God, I pray that we would bond together and fulfill our purpose as a church and help persuade those to be reconciled with you. God, thank you so much for everything you do. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Now podcast. For more information about Trinity Church, please visit us online at trinitychurchnow.com. We hope today's sermon has touched your heart, and we hope you will join us next week for another message from God's Word.